Any opinions expressed are my own and do not reflect the opinions of anyone outside of Independent Left Media, LLC. Independent Left dot News. Independent Left News. Indie Left News. Independent Left News. Oh yeah, and I get news from Independent Left. Thank you, Independent Left dot News. They actually put up posts of different shows, different things going on. Check out Indie Left. They're doing a lot of good things. They're on Twitter and Instagram, and they've helped promote our show a lot. Thanks for the work you do behind the scenes, too. This man does our Discord and some other help, so I just love to shout him out. Thanks so much, man. Yeah. They kind of really do a great job of pushing. Thank you, Independent Left, for reminding me of that. Check out independentleft.news. IndieLeft.News. IndieLeft, shout out. Well, thank you very much, Ron Flacone. Shout out to everybody that's out there. And uh, it is happy Sunday night. And how do we miss that? It is bird. It is reef. Uh, really excited and happy to be here and appreciate everybody who is here already. And uh, give everybody a couple more minutes to get in. But looks like we had about a dozen people already. We got people on the Rockfins. We are on eight platforms. Yeah, that's right. Eight platforms. Everybody eight freaking platforms. We are on the Rockfin. We are on the YouTubes. <clears throat> We're on Rumble. Live streaming on Rumble. That's really cool. We are on Odyssey, always. Twitter, Twitch, Telegram. And, of course, the evil fa fake book, Facebook. Wow. But we're there, too, just in case anybody wants to share it. And please share the stream out anywhere. Um, Reef just took himself a nice big hit. Uh, and you can see all the smoke mm -hmm. hanging out around Reef. What's up, dude? What's up, bro? Um, <sighs> that's everything. Uh, all right. So I got I got a little a little spiel here. Uh, How do we miss that? Is a show airing like I said on all these networks Sunday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern, seven Pacific, reviewing a few big stories that we haven't seen cut covered much in our independent media channels this week. Co-hosted by Indy, and that's me, founder and editor of Independent Left News and Leftist.Today. And this guy sitting over here next to me, Reef Breland, and he's the creator of the Jimmy Dore Discord, and he's the host of Reefer After Dark and INN News. We are both founding members of Indie News Network, which is a collaborative family of 23 independent new content creators. And all of the f stories that, we, that we're going to sh uh, show tonight were featured in IndependentLeft.News this week. Like I said before, please make sure to like, share, subscribe to the stream. Um, <clears throat> we are also on podcasts, so you can go and look us up on all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can actually say, hey, Alexa, download the Leftist.Today podcast, or how do we miss that? Uh, there are like four other how do we miss that. Um, we do have our, our ticker down at the bottom thanking all of our patrons and all of our donors. We really appreciate them. Did want to shout out the volunteers, though. Uh, Big Mad Crab for making the thumbnail for tonight. Kick-ass, our art director. He, he does so much to help everybody. Appreciate him. Phantomos Fanto for editing and clipping all the time. Fred Edward for sharing out the stream. Same thing with the resident skeptic, Chris Gilman, sharing out links. And, of course, Paco and Team Tara and everybody that's on Team Tara uh, making that happen as well for INN. And uh, shout-out to Jesse Jett for the, uh, for the awesome music. And everybody go download uh, The Grift from jessejet.bandcamp.com. All three songs that you heard tonight were actually featured on the the grift. Uh, we went through it on Jesse's show, American Tradition, last uh, a week ago, Tuesday. This Tuesday night, we're going to be doing the Grift Home Companion, uh, which is a spoken word piece that he wrote in uh, in conjunction with the grift. So everybody, please. Oh, and, and right, Big Bad Crab's going to be performing tomorrow night, everybody in the New York City area, which I am, but I'm not going to be able to make it there, unfortunately. But that's awesome mm. for Crab. <clears throat> um, 
I want to jump into stories. Uh, let's get into, hold on, let me go into slideshow mode, and now we will go into Indie Main. Boom. Nice. All right. Colin, what's up, dude? Iron and Brothers. All, All right. right. So we've got, this is our thumbnail that Big Mad Crab made. Um, we've got a couple stories tonight. we got Bricks. This is all kind of backwards, actually. Colonial Pipeline, it's almost like reading it in Hebrew. So it starts in Colonial Pipeline. Then we're going to talk about some teachers in Corbin. And we're going to finish on NATO and BRICS. So, you know this guy. He was here last week. He's Robbie Yeager. Mm -hmm. And he put out a whole thing about Colonial Pipeline this week on his Politified newsletter. So by all means, Yeager, J-A-E-G-E-R.substack.com. Go sign up and subscribe to Yeager.substack.com. Hook our boy Robbie up with some stuff uh subscribe there for free and uh what's that you need to share your screen definitely again i thought mm -hmm. i did sorry uh there we go uh i think that's the right screen but i don't know uh hold on virtual webcam sorry everybody just give me a second uh monitor three no that's right good so North Carolina Colonial Pipeline spill now estimated at... full cam. What? I see your full cam. Oh, full bird? Gotcha. Yep. Turn off the bird. Two million go. gallons. Okay. Two million gallons, which is now the largest spill in U.S. history. No big deal. Just the largest spill in U.S. history. Nobody's talking about it. Biggest... Uh, nope. Hey. Hey. We, we, we're number one. We're number one. Okay, so what's going on here? Mm -hmm. New pipeline owned by the Koch brothers and Shell Oil, I believe. <clears throat> Two million. That's how many gallons of gasoline Colonial Pipeline now estimates spilled from a crack in their pipeline running beneath the Oler uh, Nature Preserve outside Huntersville in August of 2020. Now, there's an updated estimate. If you link in the article, there's a link to that given as part of their statement. Okay, makes the Huntersville spill the largest inland pipeline spill in U.S. history. Previous record was 1.68 million gallons in Minnesota in 1991. I think Robbie talked about that here last week. Yeah. Speaking of which, cheers to Robbie Yeager. Ah, Yeager bombs! Cheers, cheers Robbie! Mm. So... This latest estimate marks the fourth such time that Colonial has been asked to revise what they believe to be the total volume of the spill, which started at 64,000 gallons in August 2020. Then it was increased to roughly 250,000 gallons a month later. And after state officials noticed discrepancies between the amount being reported as recovered far exceeded Colonial's expected number, they once again asked for another estimate, which Colonial provided to the tune of 1.2 million gallons. It's again, 5x every time. Months went by while Colonial slowly pulled their, for their release product from the ground. And again, state officials knew that estimates would be surpassed. But this time, Colonial decided to decline to provide another estimate, uh, estimate until they and the DEQ settled the matter earlier this month, resulting in a $4.75 million fine for Colonial, as well as handling providing new testing and, and information uh, to the agency, which they had declined to provide for over a year. God only knows what's going to come out there. Quote. Yep. Right, Colonial says, each estimate we provided to date has been based on the best available data we had at the time. Okay, this is what they they said in their submitted estimate report. 
company would go on to blame the geographical layout of the site for their model's inability to provide new estimates until a recent change in models gave Colonial what they say is a more responsible approach to determining the potential volume. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Another interesting admission in Colonial's report comes in the way of their estimation of how long the leak actually went undetected. This is also really interesting, and I've, I, you know, Robbie didn't even mention this when he was here last week. As previously reported, Colonial themselves did not discover their leak. We knew this, that two teenagers riding mm -hmm. ATVs through the area smelled gas, notified the authorities, who in turn alerted Colonial. Now it seems that Colonial believes the pipeline could have been leaking for as many as 18 days, now from July 27th until August 14th when it was discovered. While it had long been speculated that the leak had happened for a protracted period of time, Colonial's estimate is the first time anyone has placed a possible time frame on the leak. Wow. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Craig. Uh, at present, over 1.48 million gallons of gasoline have been pumped from the soil in the older nature preserve, along with nearly 10 million of petroleum contact water or groundwater pulled from the nearby area that did or could have come in contact with the spilled gasoline. Okay. While back in March 2021, <clears throat> PIM, I call them PIMSA, P-H-M-S-A, which is the federal agency that oversees pipeline security and safety, published a report condemning the entire 5,600-mile pipeline system as a hazard to humans and the environment alike with the potential for catastrophic leaks such as the one in Huntersville present throughout. And that the spill, possibly several others, were exacerbated by Colonial's inefficient leak detection methods. What a surprise. Despite that, yeah. PIMSA, a division of the USDOT, settled with the cocoa and pipeline company out of court on a promise to fix the problems with no fine, only the threat of a possibility of one. And after a long and drawn out investigation by state officials at the North Carolina Department of, of Environmental Quality, uh, in which the agency took Colonial, took Colonial to court, Agency also settled with a billion-plus-dollar-per-year pipeline company for a measly $4.75 million. It's, it, it's a speeding ticket. I mean, it's, it's a jaywalking yeah. fine for them. It's all about the cleanup now, which could take years to complete. It's also possible that this was, is not still going to be the final estimate that Colonial will provide. On that, only time will tell. And stay tuned to our brother, Robbie Yeager, and Politify for future updates on this story. So I wanted to call attention to it. I know he was here last week, but since he published it, and I love published writing, you know, putting up articles, um, I want to definitely showcase that because we can't talk about that enough. Two million gallons, yeah. largest spill in, in U.S. history. I mean, what is there to say? Um, it's it. They've I mean, had just... to go ahead. Well, it's just all these pipelines. It's the same story. Like, you know what I mean? Between the ones from Canada and this one. And it's just, I mean, it's it's gratuitously how close it is to indigenous lands already. You know, like, it, it's it's craziness all around. But the fact that they just get like, a, a you know, barely a percentage of like what, like they get no real consequence. No. Like, they get that, to throw a penny at, at the problem and it goes away. Like less than $5 oh. million dollars is, is like 
what what disincentive is that for them to continue doing exactly what they're doing? Um, yeah. Now, the other thing that I didn't get a chance to talk to Robbie about was that they were buying up the land also in the area because it was so contaminated that nobody could live there anymore. So one of the things that's happening yeah. is Colonial Pipeline has actually been buying that area. And I spoke to somebody uh, completely outside of, of politics and outside of our space, and he said that at one point his family actually used to own like that whole area, and it's just like a disgrace to see that that uh, uh, Coke and uh, what's the other one, Duke Energy and and Colonial Pipeline have just completely ravaged and destroyed that area. It's they do leak all, all the time. I mean that that's all one the of the things that that they uh, pipelines leak. That's just how it works. Unfortunately, that's that's just how how it goes. Pipelines leak. So. Um, again, manufacturing shout out to, their own tar sands said e Heller. That's right. Sh shout e out to everybody over on the Rock Fan that's wa that's watching. We got a half dozen people over there. Got a couple people watching over on the Rumbles. Good, good stuff. Uh, I do have a, a couple more stories, like I said. So let's get back into that real quick. Pew. Okay. This is a one of my favorite people on this planet is a is a gentleman over overseas by the name of Gordon Dimack. And if you haven't heard of him, you should definitely check him out. <clears throat> Give him a follow at Gordon Dimack, just like that on on the Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, everywhere. He's on Rockfin as well. This article and this he actually recorded a TikTok video about it. It's about six and a half minutes. Uh, I encourage everybody to go watch it. And it was it, it was talking about how Jeremy Corbyn was right all along and. Well, what specifically? Speaking specifically about that it was a scam and that accusations about him being a raging racist who hated the Jews were exaggerated by the media and factions without within the Labour Party for political gain. Right. So you need proof. Right. Well, here it goes. So he's going to he's going to seek to make the case here. <clears throat> All right. On Monday, a charity called the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism publicly criticized Sir Keir Starmer on Twitter for using the Berlin Holocaust Memorial as some kind of prop in his latest campaign video as leader of the UK Labour Party. And that's that that's this tweet right here. And in response to it, the campaign against anti-Semitism released a statement. It says it is a matter of decency and long-established convention in Germany that you never stoop to using the Berlin Holocaust Memorial as some kind of a prop but to incorporate the memorial as the backdrop for a political clip that does not even mention the Holocaust is an insult. That's among other things. So he's no friend to, to you know, he's trying to propagandize what's going on here and trying to use this as a prop. And they're supposedly not, you know, they're not supposed to do this. This is not the first time that the campaign against anti-Semitism have criticized the Labour Party leader. Okay, they relentlessly complained about Jeremy Corbyn during his tenure and even have an entire page on their website dedicated to criticizing him. Interesting. Their complaints during Corbyn's time as leader were so numerous, it was reported to the Charity Commission for heading a number of anti-labor campaigns. During all these attacks on labor and Corbyn by the CIA, however, he received little support from his own members of parliament, despite the negative press Corbyn received as a result of the CIA complaints. What's really interesting here is, Jewish Labour Member of, of Parliament and Dame of British Empire, Margaret Hodge, never said a word in support for Corbyn during this turbulent period, despite her being an honorary patron of the CAA. Instead, mm. she added fuel to the fire, calling him an anti-Semitic racist after Labour Party's 
ruling body, the NEC, refused to adopt certain IHRA's definitions of anti-Semitism, which were criticisms of Israel or labeling Israel as a racist endeavor, a decision Corbyn supported but was open to fresh consultation on. That sounds reasonable. She then refused to apologize yep. for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in response to this latest complaint by the CAA about Keir Starmer, however, Dame Hodge was quick to jump on her now party leader's defense. And what did she say? He visited the Holocaust Memorial on a trip to Berlin. Totally appropriate. I'm fed up of CAA using anti-Semitism as a front to attack labor. Time to call mm -hmm. them out for what and who they are. More concerned with undermining labor than rooting out anti-Semitism. Oh, now you're worried about it. And that's what he says. Why right. does she speak out in defense of her leader now? Why does she not do the same when Corbyn was her leader? Ruth Smith right. from Strictly Pro Protect and another Labor MP who was also quiet during the CAA's campaign against Corbyn all of a sudden had something to say about Keir Starmer being criticized by the CAA too. So it's pretty interesting that people are now running to Keir Starmer's defense. I'm sure that somebody made a phone call and asked for that to happen. All right, this attack's not only wrong, it's unfair and blah, blah, blah. Incredible. Dame Hodge and Ruth Smith didn't say a word when CAA was criticizing Corbyn, but now they suddenly jumped to Keir Starmer's defense. What, what's going on here? Let me remind you that he was suspended from the Labor Party because he said that the scale of the anti-Semitism problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents. In the wake of the Inequality and Human Rights Commission more, uh, report into AS in the Labor Party, uh, anti-Semitism in the Labor Party when Corbyn was leader. Which, again, uh, dramatically overstated. If anything, what you're seeing here... Okay. Isn't this proving it right? Well, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> right? Especially now... Gordon's hilarious. He And, and Misty loves him. And shout out to Misty. You know, we're, we're so sorry, Misty. And, and our thoughts are with you too, this week, too. Uh, but especially oh. now... Um, uh, now that we know what is the so-called Ford report, okay, the details of which have been leaked in the media in the last few days. Now, he admits that he hasn't read the Ford report. However, the buzz is that the report basically proves what many have been saying all along, that complaints of anti-Semitism were weaponized by factions within the Labor Party against Jeremy Corbyn. Right. What a surprise. So here's, <clears throat> here's Damien Willie, who says the Ford report has has dropped and although damning in places has desperately tried to row back or both sides stuff smacking of a watering down attempt as much as the media are spending it as exoneration for the labor right too it really isn't and this is an entire video that you can watch from damien willie this was a few days ago on twitter hmm. so he says he has to repeat that this is what corbin was expelled from labor from the labor party for saying that the scale of the anti-Semitism problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents. Exactly the same thing Dame Hodge and Ruth Smith are now doing. So they're right, of course. The CAA is a pro-Israel, politically biased group, and highlighting their complaints was a witch hunt by our media, but that also means that Labour MPs not only let that happen and said nothing, but leaned into the rhetoric with attacks of their own. Because they wanted to get rid of Corbin yep. <clears throat> and install this stooge. So to say that this is, they're right to say that it's that it's a politically motivated attack by the CAA, but that also means Corbin was right too. Yeah. The logic dictates that one of two things now need to happen. Either Jeremy Corbin is given back the Labor Party whip by Starmer, or 
Dame Hodge and Ruth Smith should be suspended by him for doing the same thing. Same thing. Right? Yep. Either yeah. way, it's 100% proof that it was a scam and that accusations Jeremy Corbyn was a raging racist who hated the Jews were exaggerated by the media and factions within the Labour Party and for political gain. Corbyn was right. And again, yep. this again, uh, who hated the Jews? Uh, I've never seen him ever make a statement to that effect. What I've seen him do is defend the rights of Palestinian people. Okay, and look for equality and denounce the Israeli government. He that does not denounce Jews. Okay, see, this is this is again conflating Israel with Judaism is a very dangerous thing to do, and that's what the Labour Party was trying very heavily to do, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to include this. On top of the fact that if you can go support my friend uh, uh, Gordon. The BBC are silent on all this, by the way, so not a peep about it anywhere, of course, on their news shows. I wonder why. But before you go, there's never been more a more important time for truthful journalism and a never, a never a worse time to get paid for it. So please support independent journalism however you can, and you can support his work with a link at the bottom of this article and on his website. Um, I've donated to Gordon in the past. I, I'm a fan of his work, and he is an ardent, stringent, original G Assange supporter who's been there from the beginning and puts wait, his heart, his wait, soul. Wait, wait, wait. You went OG, but you went original G, but not original gangster. No, because he's not, he's not really like, a gangster, but OG is still... Okay. Kind of. Yes. You just, like spread out the original part you know yeah but not the g part sure yes anyway sir. anyway uh so that that's our friend gordon uh right again hook up hook up gordon gordondemack.com at gordon demack on twitter on instagram on tiktok he's big on tiktok um good dude real good dude good heart um and calling out and big fan of people who call it out. So we don't normally co cover British politics, and I, I get that, and no. I don't really know half the players involved. Uh, I do take his word for it and his perspective. Um, I can be completely wrong, and he can be a complete schmuck on this one, but I don't think so. It seems like he's got his stuff down. I do know that they were certainly come coming at him hard, coming at Corbyn hard with the anti-Semitism stuff that they torpedoed his leadership of the party, that he could have potentially been prime minister, but they basically torpedoed the law. They put, they torpedoed his campaign so that he would lose to Boris Johnson. Oh, right. That clown. Right. Was it Boris Johnson or was it the other guy, Farage? I don't even remember which clown it was. It was one of the two, two douchebags. But... Um, yeah, KFC original recipe G. That's right. That's right. Bacon. I smell bacon in the house. Mm. Uh, they're getting Starmer now. Yes. <clears throat> Hypocrites all. That's right. Gira Brown. So let me put that up on screen. Yeah. Jeremy Starmer. Star, Keir Starmer is no Jeremy Corbyn. You can say that again 100%. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Okay. Uh, um, so... The UFC fights this weekend. Do you know? Do you know Patty the Batty? I have you, have you met Patty the Batty yet? I I, I have not. Uh, met. 
Patty the Batty. You should quick Google search Patty the Batty just so you have that image in your head. Okay. Um, but here I can I can do that. Mick Lynch and Claire um, Daly, by the way, Gear Brown are both amazing. For, you know, they're also fantastic politicians overseas. We need a lot more of them. And Mick Lynch has been doing it since he's like 17, 18 years old. He's guys, guys, true OG. Nice news stick. Nice. Thank you, Craig. Looking for a good one. Nice. There you go, bro. Uh, um, this what you this got? Is, is Patty the Batty. Right okay. here. I see him. Uh -huh. He's got this. He's got this weird bowl cut. Uh-huh. Right? He's super scouse. So it's like part of the body. It's fucking crazy British. Like, anyway. Uh -huh. um, sure. But his girlfriend, also a UFC fighter, right? Who I think is called... Uh, R.A. in the house. What's up, Nikki? This lady, the meatball. Uh, INN's Molly Meatball McCann. Molly Meatball uh, McCann. Started a whole chant for uh, Fuck the Tories. Um, well. At the fights this weekend after she sure. won. Sure. Why not? So. Yep. Okay. Good um, stuff. Good stuff. Um, yep. Ah, okay. <laughs> I got I got two more I got two more here. All right. So next, we're going to talk some labor and and a strike that was actually successful. So, how educators in Brookline, Massachusetts won an illegal strike. Right? So, striking has been illegal for public employees since 1919. But educators won nearly all their demands after they walked out on May 16th. Out of a membership of nearly 1100, more than 900 signed on, in on the picket lines May 16th. Strike culminated with a thousand educators descending on town hall for a rally with allies from around the state. Yeah. So this is actually from Maggie Kenneth. She was actually one of the members who who did execute the, the strike and one of the members of the union. So um one of the spot like this. This was in labor notes back back about a week ago, ten days ago. Bargaining team negotiated into the early hours of the next morning. When the sun rose, they had won two back-to-back three-year contracts with guaranteed prep periods for all educators, a fair pay raise, including important changes to longevity structures and language aimed at attracting and retaining a more diverse workforce. In short, right. they won all their demands with minimal compromise. Perhaps more important, they ended a cycle of disrespect and showed that they are willing to take collective action. Yes! Mm -hmm. I think that elected officials will think twice about messing with the teachers now that they saw what we could do by sticking together, said school librarian Dominique Gonier. Um, the school committee made themselves look bad to the voters and public opinion shifted in our favor. So, lifting the curtain to understand how the Brookline Educators Union built the capacity to break the law and strike you have to look back a few years. Since 2016, we've been through two superintendents and three interim superintendents, the result of rash attempts to impose an untenable data-driven model of schooling on our educators and students. What's going on here? Despite all the turnover, the school committee, like a school board, was steadily growing more combative during the negotiations. 
Uh, to expose this behavior, we, po we pushed uh, to open bargaining to members and the public. In 2019, we want to step in that direction, the right to have 12 silent representatives at the bargaining table. Throughout the bargaining process from 2019 to 2022, more than 100 rank-and-file members served as silent representatives, bearing witness to management's blatant bad-faith bargaining. Quote, I witnessed the demeanor, tactics, and commentary of the school committee's lawyer, said social studies teacher Susan Bellow. That's when I knew I had to join the contract action team. I mean, this is the haves versus the have-nots in management versus labor all day long. Yeah, this person says here, being a silent rep gave me tremendous appreciation of how difficult it was to be on the negotiations team, and I no longer questioned them. If in their judgment we needed a work action, whatever that might be, I would support them. So by sitting in on these committees, it's actually convincing the workers that the people representing them are actually representing them, and they'll go strike if they say we need to strike. This is good. Then they're ramping up here. So in the spring of 2021, school committee proposed a zero proposed a zero percent raise for the 2021 school year. They came back in September 21 with slightly more money, but proposed to weaken their grievance rights and added a demand for a 30-minute longer workday without additional pay. Why? Why are they getting more for nothing? Why are they having right. to give just to be able to keep your jobs? This doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we were proposing fair cost of living adjustments. <laughs> stronger measures to attract and retain educators of color, a planning period for every educator every day, and a joint committee to expose inequities and in excesses in job expectations. I don't think there's anything unreasonable about any of that. The school committee ignored these proposals and offered no counters, then forced us into the interstate mediation by claiming impasse. These we already had been doing work to rule action, a canvassing campaign, visibility rallies, and leafletting. Do you do you see? Okay, is everybody writing this down? Is everybody writing? Take no. notes. Work to Should rule action, a canvassing campaign, visibility rallies, and leafletting. When mediation started, we realized it was time to ramp up. We shifted the role of our contract action team to coordinating a broader action team of 200 highly engaged members. What did they do? We mapped out an action escalation, including a public rally, attending a meeting of the select board like a city council to demand funding, and packing the school committee meeting to give testimony showing our outrage. Through these actions, members began to feel that this wasn't just another contract fight, we were out to break a cycle of fear and disrespect. Boom. Then, here's the um, other key, personal outreach. Leading up to the yeah. strike vote, we had just a week to reach one, uh, 1,100 members. We used a central spreadsheet to track how ready each person was to vote yes. Math, math teacher Julie James said, with each communication, I understood that the personal contact from me was different than getting an email. They identified building leads to get in touch with strike headquarters and picket captains who who would stay to get to would stay in touch with ten members apiece, and we created cross building partnerships. It all paid off, renewing her faith that when we fight, we can win. 
But do you see the coordination? Mm. Do you see the amount of people? Do you see the amount of structure that there is there? Yep. Organization. This is organized, you know, not like the AOC version of organize, but the Freedom uh, Freedom Fighters DC, right? Isn't that the uh, the organization that Afini's part of? Fred Hampton organized. Um, I think, yeah. This is great. Mm. Okay. I, I wanted a spot like this because... There aren't very many unions and very many strikes that are actually leading to big wins against management. And though that big win was nothing unreasonable at all, the fact that there was a win. So Maggie's a kindergarten teacher and she's the co-chair of the contract action team. Okay. So big fan. Shout out to Maggie. Shout out to Labor Notes for covering this. And uh, support teachers, support educators. Highly underpaid in every way, shape, and form. Overworked. And uh, as a parent with kids in the public school system, man, we got to take care of these people. We really do. I mean, they're, they have been abused and underpaid and forced vaccinations mostly everywhere around the country, from my understanding, wherever there was a mandate for, for a vaccine in order for teachers to go back to work. Um They've endured masks. They've endured getting sick. They've endured their colleagues dying. Mm -hmm. Colin said, uh, Brookline is a high-income suburb next to Boston. That is not surprising that the demands would be met. Yeah. Um, There's money there. Yeah. And I'm sure mm -hmm. Colin would have plenty to say about that on INN News. Um, yep. But 1,100 educators winning a strike action against their their bosses is always a good thing. And it's maybe an indicator and maybe it's throwing a bone like Colin's saying, and maybe it's just like, Hey, we'll give them this one in a nice area. And the, and, and, and the wealthy kids will get a little bit better stuff and they'll get better teachers, but the system continues to roll on and not much changes. And I think that's really probably the point that Colin was trying to make. And he's not wrong there at all. Love you, Colin. Mm. <laughs> Care bear. So got one more story tonight. And then, um, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to figure that out. I got some boats. We got some boats. Yeah. All right. So, bricks. Oh, boy. This is something that we you definitely need brick. to continue to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't make it. <laughs> All right. We had a problem with some DMCAs last week. Let's make, let's, let's try not to have that happen again this yes, week. Yes. <laughs> I sound exactly like, <laughs> like the P-Funk All-Stars. That's, well, no, it's uh, Rick who James. Did, who did that, that song? That would be Rick James. Is it? Yeah, it is. Okay. So, Ramsey Baroud in Mint Press News published an opinion piece. And it's really interesting because Mint Press rarely puts the disclaimer. I noticed that, that, you know, the opinion of the person here does not reflect. But I, I guess maybe they do that every time now. But the Roger Bricks, the economic giant that is taking on the West. <laughs> Who's your Vladdy? What's up, dude? <laughs> okay. Glad All that right. caught your... Right. Um, someone's been reading the fan fiction a little too hard. Oh, come on. <laughs> our, our, our friend Tara Reed does have a t-shirt that says, who's your Vladdy? And I saw that picture and I just thought mm. that's just, that's too good, man. That's, that's too good. I mean, he seems, he seems happy. He's, He's like, pretty yeah, happy. I got whatever's in this cup. I want to know what's in that cup. No, we know what's in that cup. You know? 
We know it's not a cup. So the G7 summit in Elmach, Germany, uh, June 26th or 28th, and the NATO summit in Madrid two days later were practically useless in terms of providing actual solutions to the ongoing ongoing global crises. The war in Ukraine, the looming famines. Yeah. Climate (laughs) change and more. But the two events were important nonetheless as they provide a stark example of the impotence of the West amid rapidly changing global dynamics. Yeesh. Okay. As was the case since the start of the Russia-Ukraine war, the West attempted to display unity, though it has become repeatedly obvious that no such unity exists. While France, Germany, and Italy are paying a heavy price for the energy crisis resulting from the war, Britain's Boris Johnson is adding fuel to the fire in the hope of making his country relevant on the global stage following the humiliation of Brexit. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the Biden administration is exploiting the war to restore Washington's credibility and leadership over NATO, especially following the disastrous term of Donald Trump, which nearly broke up the historic alliance. Probably should have anyway. Even the fact that several African countries are becoming vulnerable to famines, a result of the disruption of food food supplies originating from the Black Sea and the subsequent rising prices, did not seem to perturb perturb the leaders of some of the richest countries in the world. They still insist on not interfering in the global food market, though the skyrocketing prices have already pushed tens of millions of people below the poverty line. Okay. Though the West had little reserve of credibility to begin with, Western leaders' current obsession with maintaining thousands of sanctions on Russia, further NATO expansion, dumping yet more lethal weapons in Ukraine, and sustaining their global hegemony at any cost have pushed their credibility standing to a new low. Hard to argue with. From the start of the Ukraine war, the the West championed the same moral dilemma as that raised by George W. Bush at at his start of so-called war on terror. You're either with us or you're with us. You're either with us or with the terrorists. He declared Mm -hmm. in October 2001. Of course, we know that. (laughs) But the ongoing Russia-NATO conflict uh, cannot be reduced to simple and self-serving cliches. One can indeed want an end to the war and still oppose U.S.-Western unilateralism. We do. The reason that American dictates worked in the past, however, is that unlike the geopolitical atmosphere, a few declared so Washington's out. policies. Don't ask. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Times have changed. Russia, India, along with many others in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and South America are navigating all available spaces to counter the suffocating Western dominance. These countries have made it clear that they will not take part in isolating Russia in the service of NATO's expansionist agenda. To the contrary, they've taken many steps to develop alternatives to the West-dominated global economy, and particularly to the U.S. dollar, which for five decades has served the role of a commodity, not a currency per se. The latter has been Washington's most effective weapon associated with many U.S.-orchestrated crises, sanctions, and in the case of Iraq and Venezuela, among others, mass hunger. So, China and others understand that the current conflict is not about Ukraine versus Russia, but about something far more consequential. If Washington and Europe emerge victorious, and if Moscow is pushed back beyond the proverbial uh, Iron Curtain, Beijing would have no other options but to make painful concessions to the re-emerging West. 
This in turn would place a cap on China's global economic growth and would weaken its case regarding the one China policy. China's not wrong. Almost immediately following NATO's limitless military support of Ukraine and the subsequent economic war on Russia, Washington and its allies began threatening China over Taiwan. We've seen this happen. Many provocative statements, along with military maneuvers and high-level visits by U.S. politicians to Taipei, were meant to underscore U.S. dominance in the Pacific. Two main reasons drove the West to further invest in the current confrontational approach against China at a time where, arguably, it would have been more beneficial to exercise a degree of diplomacy and compromise. Yes, it would have. First, the West feared that Beijing could misinterpret its actions as weakness and a form of appeasement. And second, because the West's historic relationship with China has always been predicated on intimidation, if not outright humiliation. From the Portuguese occupation of, the, of Macau in the 16th century, to the British Opium Wars of the mid-19th century, to Trump's trade war on China, the West has always viewed China as a subject, not a partner. This is precisely why Beijing did not join the chorus of Western condemnation of Russia. Hmm. Though the actual war in Ukraine is of no direct benefit to China, the geopolitical outcomes of the war could be critical to the future of China as a global power. While NATO remains insistent on expansion so as to illustrate its durability and unity, it is the alternative war world order led by Russia and China that is worthy of serious attention. According to the Frankfurter Allemagne Zeitung, okay, that's the Frankfurt Daily Newspaper, Beijing right. and Moscow are working to, to further develop the BRICS club of major emerging economies to serve as a counterweight to the G7. The German newspaper right. is correct. BRICS' latest summit on June 23rd was designed as a message to the G7 that the West is no longer in the driving seat and that Russia, China, and the Global South are preparing for a long fight against Western dominance. Here we go. In his speech at the BRICS summit, Vladimir Putin proposed the creation of an international reserve currency based on the basket of mm. currencies of our countries. The fact that the ruble alone has managed to survive, in fact, flourish under recent Western sanctions, gives hope that the BRICS currencies combined can manage eventually or managed to eventually sideline the U.S. dollar as the world-dominant currency. I believe that Russia and China today announced that they are actually now trading in, um, in, in either yuan or rubles. Reportedly, mm. it was Xi Jinping who requested that the date of the BRICS summit be changed from July 4th to June 23rd, so that it would not appear to be a response to the, G summit, to the G7 summit. This further underscores how the BRICS are beginning to see themselves as a direct competitor to the G7. The fact that mm. Argentina and Iran are applying for BRICS membership also illustrates that the economic alliance is morphing into a political, in fact, geopolitical entity. Yep. The global fight ahead is perhaps the most consequential since World War II. While NATO will continue to fight for relevance... Russia, China, and others will invest in various economic, political, and even military infrastructures in the hopes of creating a permanent and sustainable counterbalance to Western dominance. The outcome of this conflict is likely to shape the future of humanity. Damn. So, yep. 
Dr. Ramsey Brood, who is he? He's a journalist and the editor of the Palestine Chronicle. He's the author of six books. His latest book, co-edited with Elon Pape, is Our Vision for Liberation, Engage Palestinian Leaders, and in Intellectuals Speak Out. Um, again, he's writing for Minpress News. He's an independent writer. I've definitely featured his stuff before. Really well-educated, really good stuff. Brings it. And um, we've been talking about bricks for a little while. Um, we've been talking. They're all childs of WEF, uh, children of WEF here, from Xi to Putin to all of them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that them aligning to create. Now, look, if you look at the number of people that are in this BRICS alliance, it represents like a quarter of the world's population, at least. Way more than in NATO. All right, but what I was responding to was Big Bad Crab saying, Putin is a child of the World Economic Forum. He's not all good in terms of economics. He's not. I, I'm, yep. again, I, I, I am not. They're, being, it's it's they're just all, to play in the game oligarchical world world leaders um but yeah um they're just playing it better right now brick should change their name to based i love it that's hilarious nice <laughs> where are we at 10 40 45 minutes i got through four stories in 45 minutes man i should have done a fifth story yep damn it could have oh well uh well i like right. it better than anything else yeah i know nancy yeah. who are these people why, well, we why? could we could always do that yes. Yeah, I know. We can always do some of that. Um, we always can bust that out. And she's very demanding on yeah, this show. Yes, she's God. she's a pain. In, she's a pain in my ass as usual. <sighs> she needs to go eat some fucking ice cream. Get okay. the fuck out of here. So, um, uh, yeah, that's 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 all I got. Like, I I only prepared a few stories. Got. That's all I got. You Hello, caught up in a contender. That's what I got. You caught up in a contender. I said, remember that. Um, yeah, everyone check out Jesse's show on, on Wednesday night for uh, Tuesday night for sure. Uh, INN news Wednesday night with, I guess Colin's going to be on. I don't know if we're going to have a special guest. I'm working on booking a special guest. Possibly. We'll see if we yep. can have a pretty kick-ass interview. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, you ready for this? We'll see. Maybe. Um, I don't know if it's up yet on TNT radio live. Um, I did a panel last week with Steve from Slow Newsday and Pasta and Misty uh, talking about censorship in independent media and platforms, and it was a fascinating hour. I just uh, I had so much fun talking about it. I appreciate being asked and invited, and uh, what a great group of guys, uh, and, and of course, Misty, great group of, of people to, to talk about that with. And uh, yeah, definitely give that a listen. It's only an hour. I think it's about 50 minutes cut up. Um, I still haven't heard it yet and looking forward to listening to it myself. So I'm, I'm going to say goodnight for tonight and tell everyone to remember to question everyone's motivations. Keep listening to what little birds have to tell you, though. Good night, everybody. If you like this podcast, please help our show grow by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, you can follow Independent Left News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IND Left News and subscribe to our YouTube channel. To get news updates twice a day to your inbox, subscribe via email on the independentleft.news website. Join our Jetstream 24-7 News and Opinion Discord at independentleft.gg 
with more than 50 channels, each dedicated to a different outlet, journalist, YouTuber, or political comedian. Thanks, everyone. Remember to check out independentleft.news in your browser and subscribe to our podcast for news updates.